Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to another episode of Matt Damon's School Bus, where we interview all the famous people who rode the same school bus with Matt Damon. Tonight, John Brubaker. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Randy. As you know, some of our previous guests have included some of America's greatest stars. So tell us about yourself. I teach high school physics. In what movie? No, not in a movie. I, I teach high school physics in real life. So just taking a break from show business? Casey Affleck was on the show recently, and he said L.A. is a... No, it's not that. It's... Oh, getting ready to play a character? John Krasinski came on the show in November. He said he does that. Preparing for a role is wicked hard. He was on the same school bus, the guy from The Office? You don't remember him? He sat with Chris Evans. The That Captain America guy? He was on the school bus? I used to make out with him. Wait, I didn't realize you took the same bus. No, I was a freaking stowaway. Why do you think I do this show? Matt and Ben called me up. They said, Randy, remember the good times on the bus? You should do a show. You should have us on. Have Krasinski and Evans. Have Minnie Driver. Now, wait. Minnie Driver is English. She did not go to high school with us. Yeah, you just keep telling yourself that, Mr. Physics teacher. Mr. E equals MC Hammer or whatever the f*** that is. No wonder Dame Judy Dench didn't cast you in no plays when she was a drama teacher. You're just making things up now. You know what? Fine. Believe what you want. I gotta wrap this up. Me and Ben and Matt are watching the Patriots game with our old school bus driver. Do you remember Morgan Freeman? Not in that context. You stay here and listen to these hump faces drink wine and talk. And now he asked Sister Mary Alice Affleck to the prom like a nun would go to the prom. Colin McEnroe. See, I thought she was just Ben and Casey's sister. I didn't get that she was that kind of sister. That's the only reason. So yes, it turns out everybody famous. Actually, I I left out, you know, I wrote the intro, and I left out Mark Zuckerberg, who also wrote on that school bus, right? We've, we found that out listening to. Uh, when I say we, let me just explain what's going on. Let me set the scene for you. First of all, it's not 1 o'clock in the afternoon the way it usually is. It's 8 p.m. at night on a Thursday night. We decided to do the nose at night with uh, Teresa Kramer, a, a writer and editor of eContent magazine, uh, and the founding editor of The Cut, an online magazine for disgruntled young adults in Connecticut, Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, choreographer, of kinetic dance and blogger and I don't know there's other stuff uh, Kate Russian a Pushcart Prize nominated poet an editor and writer and a, t- a teaching artist for the Connecticut Humanities um, alright so that's who's here we decided basically that typically the way that our show works we do a live show at 1 o'clock every afternoon and then it replays at 8pm and we thought well you know the people who listen at 8pm they deserve a fresh show. It's not the leftovers all the time. Uh, so we're doing a fresh show for you people at 8 p.m. It'll be on at 1 p.m. tomorrow. I hope that's not too confusing. It gets really confusing because the show we did at 1 o'clock today is going to be on at 8 o'clock tomorrow. And I can't even begin to talk to you about that. So one thing that we did, we all went to see Manchester by the Sea. Manchester by the Sea, uh, directed uh, and written by Kenneth Lonergan, uh, acclaimed playwright and also screenwriter and director of other movies like You Can Count on Me, uh, is uh, he sets a, a 
a story in a uh, North Shore. I guess that's North Shore, right? North yeah, Shore, North Shore. Uh, Massachusetts town. Uh, Casey Affleck plays a guy who's um, the unwilling, uh, unwillingly recruited guardian uh, of his brother's son. His brother dies at the beginning of the movie. Uh, and Casey is asked, uh, his character Lee Chandler is asked to take over, uh, bringing up this rather precocious and sassy narcissistic teenager. Uh, and, uh, and he's not too up for it. Uh, we're going to play a clip from the movie. It's going to sound like we're playing two or three clips at once because the movie likes to have a lot of overlapping dialogue. Uh, but you will actually hear uh, Casey Affleck uh, argue a little bit uh, with a friend of the family, I think, about how this is going to work. I don't understand. Which uh, part are you having trouble well, with? Well, I can't be his guardian. Well, uh, I mean, I can't. Well, naturally, I, I assumed Joe had discussed all this with you. No. He didn't. No. Uh, I, I, sorry, I have to say I'm somewhat taken aback. He can't live with me. I live in one room. <laughs> well, but Joe has provided for Patrick's upkeep. Food, clothes, etc. And the house and the boat are owned outright. I can't commute from Boston every day until he turns 18. I think the idea was that you would relocate. Re relocate to where? Well, if you yeah. look, it's just, well, as you can see, you know, your brother worked everything out extremely carefully. Uh, but he can't have yes, uh, meant that. All right. Does it, was that the end of the cut? All right. So that wasn't the part with the over the overlapping dialogue. Uh, this is a movie about pain. It's about family responsibility. Uh, it's, you know, Teresa, it's a movie that often gets characterized, including by Casey Affleck when he was hosting Saturday Night Live, as this incredibly depressing movie. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there certainly are moments of searing personal pain in this movie. Although I wouldn't necessarily say that at the end of this, that I left the theater. Depressed. I don't know. Did you find it a depressing movie? No, I didn't. Um, I was sad. I, I think my boyfriend was alarmed for me because I was crying so hard through most of it. But um, I wasn't depressed. I, you know, you got the feeling, um, not that he was going to be okay, but that he was making baby steps towards being slightly better, and that. Um, <laughs> Carolyn's just shaking her head at me and because she was it's thoroughly depressing. depressed by this movie. I, I didn't find it depressing. One, it's funny. I mean, there there were just, I mean, I LOL'd at certain points, you know, like I was guffawing. And you guffawed? Yeah. yeah I well, I mean, yes. yeah, really but moments. ultimately, like, I, I left. I saw it last night and I, I went alone and I, I came home and I just was... Like, it, yeah, mm -hmm. it was like I had taken a brick to the face. I of, felt like a brick this, of emotion. I, I felt like it was, you know, I get more depressed by things that are about I, you know, I sort of compared it to the fourth season of The Wire, which is just like you're just like, oh, no, there are kids who are really going through this. And this is a set systemic problem that's never going to be solved. And this was such a personal story about one person. And you're like, oh, I know guys like this who are sort of just never going to get their stuff together. And um, but you love them and they they soldier on. It, and that's just the way life is. That's the way life is for most people. Kate, did this movie feel authentic for you? Did, did it strike you as the way real people attempt to get through things like this? Yeah, it, it really did. Because I, I actually lived in Boston and Cambridge hmm. 
And my first teaching job was in Southie High. So anytime I hear the accent and see the landscape, you know, uh, I go back emotionally to a very important time in my life. I didn't find the movie depressing. I found it really interesting because I thought the characters and the situations they were in did seem so authentic to me. I actually lived one winter in Provincetown uh, back in the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, and you saw a lot of guys struggling like uh, Lee struggles in this movie. Yeah, I, I think, first of all, uh, one of the things they do very well is um, it, it is, although there are some striking performances by Gretchen Mall and by Michelle Williams, um, it's sort of a movie about how guys get through stuff in particular. I mean, the, the stuff with Michelle Williams and Gretchen Mall, both of them, really striking and really, really interesting. But they're essentially subplots. This is about uh, these two men in particular. Uh, it's a little bit uh, about the the dead brother, too, who I think it's pretty clear has set this whole thing in motion, not only as a way of saving his son, but of saving his brother, too. He feels his brother is lost, that if he brings the two of them together after his death, mm-hmm. uh, things are going to get better. There's some other key male characters. And, and Carolyn, I think, you know, m- maybe as a Massachusetts person, you recognize there's a way in which we see men kind of getting on each other's cases, you know, in a way that at least struck me as as very real, very familiar, you know, that people don't, even at a time like, you know, after the death of a father or a brother, wallow in grief all the time. They use all kinds of male forms of deflection, and we see them all in play here. Yeah, definitely. I I think that it's, especially for that, like, tough guy that Bostonian tough guy will suppress the emotion that I grew up in Boston. And, you know, you got that. They did a great job of capturing that, these characters. And I think Lee and and his nephew were set up to both. I mean, both of them, the scenes in which you you first see them, where you meet the characters, well, or almost where you meet them, they're both, you know, picking fights and getting into fights and using this male aggression. And I kind of saw that as at first you know when the movie first started I was like oh, okay all right you know he they're just punching people and but it, in the end they're gonna hug and everything's gonna be great um and ice skating right <laughs> yeah. playing hockey yeah. <laughs> yeah and they're gonna go out on that boat and there's gonna be rainbows and sunshine um but it, the 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 character of Lee is done so well and Casey Affleck who as we were all talking I I had a I never really thought of him as this incredible actor, but this movie changed go all ahead, of Go them. ahead and say how you, you, you did think about it. <laughs> okay. I said that if Casey Affleck was at a bar, he would be that <laughs> creep that I'd have to quickly excuse myself from. <laughs> While hoping that Ben was going While to hoping that Ben would over. come on over here. <laughs> but, but I think I think some of that is part of what makes this a great performance too. Mm-hmm. Casey Affleck has a lot of things to mine inside him. I don't really know anything about him. A bunch of us, maybe all of us, listened to all our part of the, this extensive interview with Mark Maron, where I didn't really feel, feel like I got to know him any better. Uh, I did get to sort of see him in, in action on Tuesday night. I was in New York where he was winning a major award. But there's something about him, you know. There's something about. I mean, even other people have made this point, too. Just, like, watching him shovel snow. He's a janitor uh, or a custodian at an apartment complex at the beginning of this movie. And and I don't know. I mean, Teresa, there's a way in which you kind of see him carry all kinds of pain. He doesn't even have to say anything. He just shovels snow, and you can see how miserable he is. Yeah, there's something about, like, it's almost—I know— 
there's like a sadness to him just as a human being that comes through almost no matter what. And sometimes, you know, in something like the Ocean's Eleven movies or, you know, probably the only sort of funny thing he's ever done, he still comes off as pathetic or something. And and he (laughs) definitely is a pathetic creep. Mm -hmm. But in this movie, he was like a different kind of pathetic creep. Like he Mm -hmm. was really a character who was... Right. A pathetic creep, and that was what was so incredible to well, me. I don't think he's a creep. In this well, he's not—he's not a creep, but I, I, yeah. you know, there—he's—he's they, he's definitely sympathetic. There's so in a many lot of ways. complex yeah. levels to what he—he mm-hmm. he did here, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 it's in just simple moments, exactly like whatever he is doing. There's just so much to read into, and why it was a fascinating performance for me as an actor watching this. I, I thought it was just like it was mind blowing to see what he did with mm-hmm. this. Kate, there are some very interesting things that women do do in this movie. Gretchen Maul plays uh, the widow uh, of the dead brother. Uh, and there's uh, also a tremendous performance by Michelle Williams. She's not on screen all that much. Uh, she, at the same award ceremony, she won Best Supporting Actress. She's probably going to be nominated for an Oscar in the same category. But there's a way in which both of these women, they're very different types. Gretchen Maul plays this uh, mother who was uh, and wife who was a terrible alcoholic uh, who now pursues a drastically different course, but not necessarily in a way that bears fruit for anybody else. Uh, and then Michelle Williams is, uh, we, without spoiling anything, and we don't want to spoil anything, is the only person in any position, I think, to to grant any kind of absolution or deliverance uh, to this uh, this ravaged character played by Casey Affleck. And there's this kind of amazing scene where she she tries to do that. Um, and and I don't know. Once again, I, I think it's beautifully written, but she just lays stuff out there in a way you don't often see in movies. Yeah, that was a great scene. Uh, you know, the, the movie's about a lot of people holding in a lot of things. They're very restricted emotionally. And in that scene you're describing where, uh, where Lee and his ex-wife meet – and she's got a new baby, and she she tries to apologize to him and say, I, and she says, I shouldn't have said those things to you. And then she begins to cry, but he can't handle it. He can't take her crying. Mm-hmm. And one thing I noticed about the crying is that the characters who are dealing with all this grief cry at different points mm-hmm. in in the in the story, and that's. That's his ex-wife's spot to cry. That's Michelle Williams' spot to cry. But he just – he can't take it. He can't accept it. He can't handle it. In some ways, the only person who can break through uh, to Lee Chandler uh, is, in fact, his nephew Patrick, the person he is supposed to be taking care of, the person he is reluctant to be taking care of. I think one thing that this movie does really well is get the narcissism of teenagers. That mm-hmm. Here's a guy who's just lost his father. His mother is also kind of uh, out of the picture. Uh, this is a, a, a young man who maybe would be – if he allowed himself clinging to the shirt tails of his uncle, one of the last people able to help him at all. But he's not really quite like that because teenagers are so rooted in the moment. <laughs> uh, and, and let's hear uh, another little clip. This is Lee and uh, Patrick, his, uh, his nephew, talking about what the future is going to be like. And you'll hear maybe a little bit of that narcissism. We're not going to be here that much longer. I'm not moving to Boston, Uncle Lee. Well, I don't want to talk about that You right said he now. left you money so you could move. Yeah, that doesn't mean... Anyway, what's in Boston? You're a janitor. 
So what? You could do that anywhere. There's plenty of toilets and clogged up drains all over town. I don't want to All my friends are here. I'm on the hockey team. I'm on the basketball team. I gotta maintain our boat now. I work on George's boat two days a week. I got two girlfriends, and I'm in a band. You're a janitor in Quincy. What the hell do you care where you live? A moment of a kind of heartlessness, but, but Carolyn, I thought he really did get, I mean, Lonergan writing this thing, too, just gets at what a teenager is really like. I mean, this is the one person who has, the people who are trying to extend absolution or soft landings to the Casey Affleck character, they're out of luck. That's not going to happen. But there's a way in which this kid who is pretty unforgiving and unstinting can actually sort of talk to him in a real way. Yeah, their their relationship is, is like the heart of this. And and that kid, he was also great. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know his, his name, but the kid who plays the nephew, Patrick, is Lucas Hedges. Yeah. I mean, he had a great performance to keep up with. And uh, <laughs> I, I did think that he, he was fascinating in choices that he was making, his his character makes in the movie and how he's dealing with it. Um, you know, his his relationship with with the girls. I am afraid to, like, give stuff, yeah. oh, give stuff away <laughs> with going going too deep in, into things. But um, I, I don't know. I. I didn't necessarily, I saw the narcissism was again for him, that was like his tool of suppression here mm-hmm. that you were you were seeing. And teenagers do, do that so? all the time. I, 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 I felt like so. that's just how teenagers deal with things. They just, they're, they're going to keep going to band practice and hanging out with their girlfriends and making dumb jokes with their friends. That's just how teenagers operate. But I also think. And they're so oblivious to other people and what they might be going through that he can't even... I think some of that is just trying to continue on. When If, if you're mm-hmm. a teenager and your whole life falls apart, I think yeah. one of the only things that you would know how to do, and, mm-hmm. and even right. adults do that, you know, you just try to find regular and stick mm-hmm. with it. And that's what I saw. Some of that was what he was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Here's my question about uh, Lucas... I'm sorry. Hedges. Lucas Hedges, formerly Lucas Hedges, Hedges, who played Patrick, Patrick. the nephew. Yeah. Here's formerly my question. of Moonrise Kingdom. All right. Here's my oh. question about, about Lee and Patrick. I can see Lee as Patrick was when he was young, playing hockey, having his girlfriends, et cetera, et cetera. And at one point when Patrick says to him, I'm not going to college, I wondered. I said, uh-oh. Is is Lee what's waiting for Patrick when Patrick gets older if he doesn't get out of that town? Or will his strength of personality carry him through to a different future? If I could be permitted to answer this, I, I think in a lot of ways this is a movie about how men aren't particularly good at healing themselves or finding ways out or maybe even choosing from the menu of possible life options that might make sense. And I'm not saying that women are innately a lot better. And the women in in this movie have kind of a mixed bag, although uh, each of them has managed to bounce back a little bit and try to recreate a semblance of a new life. Um, whereas I think the movie is kind of saying, you know, guys – Guys can just go down some blind alleys and, and even a simple thing. I mean, this kid clearly is 
probably college material. He's a relatively accomplished athlete. He seems smart. Uh, he's in a band. He's got two girlfriends. I don't know if that counts. Um, <laughs> but put that on the college application. Yeah. But you know, there's a there's that's a lot of extracurricular yeah. activity. <laughs> there's kind of a male helplessness here, right? I mean, these are you know both both the young man and, and the middle aged man in this story. I mean, one of their responses to their own pain is to get in fistfights. You know, and and you don't see them able to assemble uh, any kind of arsenal of really good options. And so when he says that thing about I'm not going to go to college, I, I find myself thinking that's because you're a stupid guy, you know, <laughs> and you, you you can't even see two or three steps down the candy land path you're on right now. Um, and, that's funny. Yeah. I had a different take on it because I thought this was a kid who just saw it, who not that he was not going to be Lee, that he was going to be his father. Right. He's very concerned with keeping the boat, fixing up the boat, making a living off this boat because his father was a fisherman. And so that I saw it as him wanting to follow in that path and who needs to go to college. That's to be how a I saw it, too, mm-hmm. that yeah. he was just so determined to keep mm-hmm. the boat and keep that business that he was afraid going to college would would stop that. Or even what's the point of going to college if that's ultimately what you want to do? Because, or you want to just fix because boats. Because being a lobsterman in a time of climate change is such a great, great candle to follow throughout your life. Hey, before we uh, finish talking about this, first of all, I, I think we're all in agreement. This is a really good movie, very powerful movie. Uh, it uses also, um, it uses scene really well. It uses light really well. Uh, you really feel as though, even though I'm told Manchester by the Sea in real life is a rather upscale community. It is nothing time. like this <laughs> movie. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. the thing. I looked up the real estate after I got oh, home. Yeah. It's you zillowed it? Yes. It's like One of my I didn't see anything under beaches 600, in the world is at Manchester by the Sea. Singing, Singing Beach. Beach. Yeah, yeah, Singing Beach. Yeah. Well, I, I guess what I found interesting is this film against the backdrop of this very affluent tourist destination. Mm-hmm. And I saw this as the other side. They just didn't show us the rich, that's the rich what, side. That's what I, I felt that they were going for. But yeah. it certainly gives you a physical sense of place, a powerful yeah. – uh, I, I found the score – very evocative. I've heard people complain a little bit about the mawkish music I like at the, the most. Score. I like it. I don't even you know, rem- troubling remember scene. it. Yeah. Well, the, there is, for, yeah. for example, a fair amount, a couple of instances of really nice uses of choral music, mm-hmm. uh, often appropriately enough at memorial services mm-hmm. and things like that. But uh, very, you, you'll hear music when we go out at the end of this. We also have to talk about a controversy. It's either major or minor that has risen up around Casey Affleck, uh, who really does seem destined for at least a Best Oscar nomination, a Best Actor nomination for the Oscars. And and maybe, I don't know, maybe the path looks pretty clear, too. I'm not really sure who exactly is going to be getting in his way. Uh, But um, he has some things in his past, uh, and this has been chronicled just about everywhere now. Uh, And it turns out that Carolyn's instincts may have been somewhat right when she thought (laughs) he's the creep. She doesn't want approaching uh, her at the bar. So we know that two different women have made two different kinds of sexual harassment uh, accusations against him. Uh, one of them basically, basically saying that he – what he expo- – did he actually – does she saying that he exposed himself or no, offered no, no. to expose From what himself? I understand, yeah. he, she, he was um, sort of encouraging a crew member to expose himself. And it's not really clear whether or not the guy ever did. There you go. And then there was another incident where they were all staying in his apartment. And this was during the filming of that weird Joaquin Phoenix movie where Joaquin Phoenix just To die for that one? No, No. that one where uh, I'm not here or Um, he's not there or whatever it's called, where Joaquin Phoenix appears to have gone off the deep end. 
And um, they all stayed at Casey Affleck's apartment in New York. And he told this woman she could sleep in his bed and he'd sleep on the couch. And then in the middle of the night, he got in the bed and she said he was caressing her back, I believe. Yeah. And like reeked of alcohol. And um, so those are that seems to be the the core of the accusations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions that's been raised by the New York Times and other places, Kate, is, I mean, Nate Parker, whom I think you were part of the discussion we had uh, earlier in the season, uh, the auteur behind Birth of a Nation, I mean, everything about his chances, not just for Oscars, but maybe even continued employment in the movie industry, went off the rails with an old college uh, rape case surface. The person who was the uh, alleged victim, the accuser, uh, had subsequently killed herself. Uh, Parker's initial answers to questions about this were on the graceless side. Uh, and it, it kind of did him in. And there's been some questions raised about whether or not uh, Casey Affleck, whether that's a false equivalency looking at these two stories or whether Casey Affleck, I suppose these aren't mutually exclusive possibilities. Maybe Casey, Casey Affleck enjoys a certain amount of uh, of white protection that, that, that Nate Parker just doesn't have. Yeah, not, not to mention a brother who's one of the biggest Hollywood actors and being friends with Matt Damon. And what I read online uh, from Amy Zimmerman, from Daily Beast, and others, is that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck have been accompanying Casey Affleck as he goes on his on his uh, 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 appearances. The other thing that the irony of the one irony I see with the Nate Parker comparison is that Nate Parker went to trial, mm-hmm. and so the testimony was public, and he was acquitted. Whereas Casey Affleck settled mm. for reportedly millions of dollars, and so uh, people are are forbidden from talking about it. Mm-hmm. So the guy on WTF today just explained why he wasn't going to ask uh, Casey Affleck about this situation because what's the use of asking if he's not going to answer? You know, I mean, one is a criminal case. The other is uh, a civil case. I also wonder whether some of the reason that Casey Affleck can weather something like this, there is somewhere built into his – I'll just tell a quick story from Tuesday night, not to sound like somebody who went to a big award ceremony and wants to talk about it. But enjoy it. Enjoy it. So he got up there to accept his award, and this award is bestowed by critics. And there's a certain amount of ribbing that goes along over the course of the evening anyway about the almost uneasy relationship between the critic establishment uh, and the creative establishment. Uh, He went so far as to pull out of his pocket some, you know, wrinkled pieces of paper and to read five extremely negative uh, reviews of his earlier acting work, just lacerating reviews. Uh, Do you remember what movies that he was talking about? Well, it wasn't always clear. One of them, I think, was the the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't clear always which movies were being mentioned. But anyway, after he got through doing this and and kidding some critics and stuff like that, he said, of course, he goes, none of these things, and he says it in that little sort of breaking voice of his, you know, none of these things are things that I didn't think about myself. Um, (laughs) I I thought darker things, you know, just trying to fall asleep at night. Um, You know, and he kind of went on, and it was quite believable that that one of of his reactions to all this lacerating criticism is that's the voice I hear in my head all the time anyway. Um, And and maybe that's one of the reasons, one of the ways he can kind of wiggle out of this. There's this sense that this 
this character he plays in Manchester by the Sea, and and a, some of the other. I mean, even the guy he plays in Gone Baby uh, Gone, which I think he's just terrific in that, and it's a great movie. But that's not a happy guy, you know. Maybe when you play really unhappy people, you know, there's well, a sense. I think, of like, you know, Carolyn thinks he's a creep for a reason, right? Like, I don't think anyone expected him to be a happy-go-lucky sort of. A nice guy to be around, and um, that's not an excuse for bad behavior. But on the Mark Maron podcast, he also says that he's been sober for three years. So there may have been a time where he was doing some really unsavory, crazy stuff in part because he had a problem, which is sort of different than, say, Woody Allen, who <laughs> married a child. He did you it know? all sober. So, yeah. <laughs> he did it all sober. All right, that's a good point. Well, mm-hmm. we're going to have to leave uh, it there and leave Casey Affleck in the hell of his own creation if he's uh, <laughs> built one. Uh, we're going to uh, take a little break. We'll come back after this. Right, we're back. We were continuing to d- debate Manchester by the Sea, although we're not debating whether we like it or not. We all like it a lot. We encourage you to go see it. And uh, we're going to move on to another topic. As we move on to this topic, I do want to say that I've suddenly realized that nobody on this show, except maybe <laughs> me, uh, is sort of a typical working stiff, you know. Uh, maybe, Teresa, you're probably the closest mm-hmm. thing to it because this is sort of basically about how people deal with their employers, uh, <laughs> you know. And, and so we have a poet and uh, sort of an actress, comedian, dancer. Uh, and and so in France, they have taken a novel step. They have um, asserted – the French are very good at locating rights that nobody else was ever <laughs> aware of. And so they have now located the right to disconnect. Uh, there's a, a French law. Uh, as of January 1st, uh, it gives French employees the right, to, supposedly anyway, to disconnect. Although if you get a little bit more deeper into it, it's companies with more than 50 workers must negotiate with their employees and unions and agree on a policy to reduce the intrusion of work into their private life. Um, so presumably it's 8 o'clock at night. You've had your first glass of boxed wine uh, and maybe – Or your second. Or your second. <laughs> and um, – and and maybe uh, it's time for the emails to stop coming in. Maybe it's time for the emails to stop coming in uh, on the weekends. So having worked with all of you on the nose for quite a long time, I actually sort of have a sense of all of your respective relationships with emails and how often <laughs> you check them. Um, and and But so, Kate, for a poet, I think this is an easy thing to understand, right? I mean, this notion, you're, I'm sure, surrounded by people who are electronically tethered, uh, who can be pestered and bothered uh, by the man uh, at, at almost any time of day. In the middle of the night, right. early in the morning. So this must be weekends. your idea of an afternoon in Tartarus to watch uh, people have to deal with this. Well, you know, I have to deal with it also because, uh, you know, I work with uh, teachers, public schools teachers, and they're so difficult to get a hold of because you have to kind of call at 7.59 a.m. in order to get to talk to them. And if you miss, you, you might not reach them for another three days. Yesterday I was in a meeting with a group of teachers, they shall be re- na- remain unnamed, and everybody was on their laptop, and nobody was talking to anybody to get the make the me- meeting move forward. 
So I've got my own my own take on but, wanting but, to, everything to be more regularized. Right. Well, but some of that is volitional, okay? So we're really talking more about uh, – Teresa, you and I have to talk about this for yeah. a second. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but about whether or not the company you work for mm-hmm. or whoever is in charge of your life at any given moment can at any given moment – Mm-hmm. Uh, contact you, expect you, expect an answer from you before you go to sleep at night or before mm-hmm. Sunday afternoon is over. You know, and this has been increasingly the way of things. A lot of it depends, I think, on how you feel about your job in the first place. Right. And so about five years ago, I started working completely from home. And at the time, my boss's concern was that I wouldn't be able to turn things off. So I'm still not a great subject for this because, one, my boss just doesn't email me all the time. If he's emailing me, it's because there's a crisis, It's a, you know, and he would probably just have to call me because I'm also – I'm just um, – just, I'm good at disconnecting from my phone in general for work or non-work reasons. I don't allow push messages on my phone. I don't want anyone coming to bother me with – I don't want to know every time I get an email. So um, – But I certainly know people who are constantly getting those calls, who are constantly getting those emails, and I don't understand it. I'm just like, just turn off your phone and tell them you didn't see it. I don't understand why you feel like you need to respond. I feel like I have a really weird and unique perspective on this because in in my line of business, like, I have to respond right right away. Like, if my agent – you know, calls me and is like, we got you in for this audition. Kenneth Lonergan would like you to play an alcoholic ex-wife in <laughs> yes. a movie about the North Shore. Yeah, yeah. I am there, you know. <laughs> so I, I'm, and, and sometimes when, when you're filming things, like things change last minute, like it, it's going to rain in the morning, so we're going to push up filming an hour, like we're, you know, and, and just anything, or like your call time has been moved, you have to do a wardrobe. So I have gotten calls or emails, and they want you, and they'll say, please respond to this so that we know mm-hmm. that you're, you're getting this and that you know what to do. And um, I, on the same side, I feel like I aggressively have to respond to things pertaining to work for me really fast. So I, I never turn off. I was wrong to minimize your pain. And, 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 <laughs> yes. and, and in fact, I mean, you're an example. So if this were 1927 and you were Janet Gaynor, you know, the studio would be sort of just taking care of this. They would find you wherever you were and bring you to the set. But you'd only have one job. One of the things that you're describing, it's a common phenomenon. I live with it, too, you know, that a lot of us have multiple jobs. So it really isn't just a matter of... Yeah. You know, the guy on the sixth floor being able to find you. It's any number of employers, potential employers, people who imagine that they've employed you or might be, <laughs> might be right. about to employ you. That's There's right. all kinds of people. And I, that's, you know, going to be true for you, too. You yeah. know, you really don't want to miss – you might want to miss the call asking you to be the poet at the Trump inauguration. But, you know, you wouldn't want to miss the call – you know, telling you that you're going to be the, you know, I at, left my house at, without at the, my at the, phone at the, at the, the Cory Booker in, uh, inauguration. That's and right. You want to be there for that. And I also don't want to miss the call to be on the nose. Sorry, that's right. Well, uh, I, I left yeah, my phone at home the other the day nose. and I drove, I doubled back to go get it because the idea of not having that communication was terrifying to me. I was telling Carolyn earlier that it's it's pretty common for me to just lose my phone mm-hmm. for like hours on the weekend and not notice. So you're actually more French than Carolyn yeah. or the poet. I just have like you're just going to have to start paying me a lot more if you want me to answer your emails at 11 o'clock at night. And if, once you start doing it, I mean, if there's a real emergency, but what real emergency is there when you're 
editing a monthly magazine, you know? So, like, I, I mean, it's just not going to happen. There's nothing in my line of business that's that important that someone needs to talk to me at 11 o'clock. So I will quickly tell a story from inside the, this show. Uh, I don't know. We're not sure what kind of story this is, at least in the context of the French right to disconnect. Uh, but, but one of the things that we decided, I mean, I think this arises from the fact that we really like working on our show and like we like working together uh either that or i've just basically insisted that everyone tell me that to make me feel better (laughs) but one thing we discovered was particularly i think maybe when our latest configuration of producers was new the people were very excited so they'd email each other all weekend i'm working on this i'm working on that i'm going to be doing this what should we do on tuesday and at a certain point we realized that we were spending all weekend opening emails Mm -hmm. and looking at them and deciding whether to respond to them so the idea that i came up with was that we would use Google Docs and that there would be a weekend document, we call it. And if you think of something that's important, you know, you are just get on that that uh, weekend document and, and put it in there, and whatever it is. And then ultimately you could just look at it once, you know. Mm-hmm. You're, you're now at least not in the position of having to keep track of all these things that are being flung at you all the time. And and I think most of us have just have decided this is – Better. I mean, it's not freedom, you know. It's not the kind of freedom that the French dream of for us to have. Uh, but but it's you know at least represents an acknowledgement that yeah, we were I, being driven crazy. I, re- I I I appreciate the French and the stand they're taking because I'm just inundated with with emails and chains and every 20 people responding. Yeah, reply all is probably more of a problem in this situation <laughs> than anything else. Right. Although I don't think poets do a lot of reply all, you know. Um, and the thing about it, it's like for little or no money. Yeah. I mean, I don't see Elizabeth Bishop, you know, if she had email, you know, reply all. She just writes something to Robert Lowell, you know, and that would be it. Uh, all right. So we're going to shift gears here. But I think we all we like what the French are trying to do, right? I do. Yeah. I think for people who where that's the expectation and certainly – it would there make are. me nervous. <laughs> people, yeah. people shouldn't be tethered. They shouldn't be sent important emails at mm-hmm. eleven o'clock at or night when they're on vacation. You know, you or know. you know about uh, an eight a.m. meeting or a seven a.m. meeting. It's not fair, right? Yeah. I think in the Truffaut movie about your life as you know an actress comedian, you know, and you're and and there'd be all these pushed emails coming up on your phone and everything, and that would be part of the tragicomic tension of your life. So. I, I, I think it is. So I, I think even the French version of your life, you're probably, you know, having some problems with this. Uh, you know, even they can't get you out of this problem. Um, all right. So, but anyway, we basically like the, I feel like I'm, I'm Borat. We like <laughs> Manchester by the sea. We like. <laughs> who wouldn't like this idea, though? Like, is there someone out there who just really loves getting emails that they have to respond think, to at I 11 o'clock at night? I think if you went to Silicon Valley or its equivalent, you find lots of people saying, well, that that's no way to function. And in <laughs> fact... You know, I mean, that basically is going to put you behind the curve uh, competitively, internationally. Don't do it. You're well, going to be a second it, rate or third rate. It gives you bad manners. Yeah. Then you're sitting at dinner on your BlackBerry. I wonder how that does work, though, for people who are working with people in different time zones. I will say that, you know, I mean, I haven't been to Paris in a couple of years, but but I have been a few times recently. So has Carolyn. I don't see people on their phones. That, they would never do that. Or, I mean, it's rare anyway yeah. to see people. Looking at their phone at, you know, nice restaurants. You're supposed to be sitting there. 
thinking about the, the exquisiteness. Uh, that is one thing. That is my New Year's resolution. I will not look at, I don't want to look at my phone during meals. Like if I yes. go to dinner or I'm having dinner. I would like to point out that we I did just it. had dinner and she took I did it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So yes, we are. I will remind you all, if you're just tuning in, we're live on Thursday night. Uh, you might be hearing this tomorrow at one o'clock, but uh, we're live at night. We've all been out to various places for dinner. That may account for our our bubbliness. Uh, <laughs> we'd like to think we're also bubbly on Friday at 1 o'clock. Anyway, uh, so I don't know. Do we have time to do Megan, Callen, M- Megan Kelly? Eh, oh, yes, I'm being told. Yes, we do. <laughs> so uh, we have just a few minutes to talk about Megan Kelly. Obviously, she's part of the news of this week. Uh, Megan Kelly is leaving Fox News. Uh, she's going to NBC, where she's been given at least three different incredibly important duties. Um, this is all part of a general shuffle uh, because, of course, Fox is knocking itself out for diversity, they're replacing her with Tucker Carlson, a white guy in a bow tie. Uh, uh, Greta Van Susteren has also left, uh, and she is going to be on MSNBC. But I, I don't know. I don't. Know. I, I guess maybe Teresa, the place to begin this conversation is Megyn Kelly attained a certain status mm-hmm. uh, over the over the course of the last year. I mean, it really kind of goes back to the last election cycle where she confronted Karl Rove on election night uh, mm-hmm. about his estimates and his numbers and went back and talked to all the data geeks and had this kind of big kind of Hollywood moment. But during this election cycle, because she wouldn't always play along uh, with Trump or Trump surrogates, she kind of got a reputation as the Fox woman who wasn't necessarily going to run every single play mm-hmm. being called by Roger Ailes. I, I don't know. I mean, so I think there's a way – there's a tendency to project a lot of hope onto her. Like maybe there's – you know, you can find your soul after Fox News for those of us who don't enjoy Fox News. I wonder how that will play on a mainstream or news network, right? Because if you – I mean if you're on NBC and you're just supposed to be reporting the news a la Lester Holt, right? He's the one who took over for Brian Williams now. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know – I mean, is are, is I'm more concerned about what NBC is trying to do in bringing her in. I mean, they're already running The Apprentice, and um, so right. they're are they, uh, you know, well, their their ratings that, are faltering. Yeah. They have been for a long time. This is just a play to get those viewers. Right? One of the one of her shows is supposed to be a Sunday night news magazine, right? With one person, I don't know what that means. What up against uh, sixty minutes? Sixty minutes. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know how that's going to work either. Another one of her duties will be she'll have some kind of daily show. It's not exactly clear if it's a kind of a Katie Couric-y kind of show or if it's a little bit more of a, a, a hard Don't tell me Hoda and Kathy Lee are getting pushed out. Well, I mean, <laughs> they're one, going to rehab. They thing to, I, yeah. <laughs> they're they're going to go dry up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. One thing I do want to say about, about NBC, and I think it's one reason they're doing this, nobody – did better as a result of this election, in my opinion, than NBC because mm-hmm. they're a vertically integrated news and entertainment uh, network. So that you know they've got uh, hideous Morning Joe and Mika uh, making all kinds of hay about this and making themselves as available to Trump as they possibly can. Uh, they've got their news operation. They've got MSN. They've got other MSNBC stuff. Their regular news. They've got Meet the Press, where Chuck Todd every Sunday plays comedy clips from the previous night's <laughs> Saturday Night Live. They also, as you say, have The Apprentice. They have access. Hollywood, which is where the whole <laughs> Billy Bush mess started. You know, this is and, and I think, Carolyn, one thing is that they looked at this 
the, the, the land spreading out before them or, or in back of them from 2016 and thought, wow, this re- we should just keep adding to this because yeah. the more pieces we have, it, it's almost impossible to lose the game. You know, <laughs> I mean, we have so many pieces on the board that, that somehow or other will allow us win. And getting a Megyn Kelly is another win. Yeah, you know, just throw all the darts at the board. You never know what's going to stick. Uh, they are literally paying Trump still, right? I mean, he's on the payroll as a producer on, right? On, yeah. I don't I, like I to think about so. that. I don't like I to think about so. that. <laughs> All right. We have to leave it there. You, you're alone with your own thoughts about Megyn Kelly. We want to leave some time to make some recommendations to you when we come back. And we will do that. In order to lure Megyn Kelly away from Fox, NBC offered her a three-part package. Her own daytime news and discussion program, an in-depth Sunday night news show, and an element named after her, Magnium. Tonight's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern was Sleepy Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Andy Richter. All of our shows are stored at wnpr.org slash Colin. And now, back to Colin. I actually was pronouncing the name of that element a little bit differently. But um, all right. So anyway, uh, it's time to make some recommendations. Uh, Let's do that. Once again, let me just say we're on here at night and Jonathan is reminding me, Jonathan McPants is reminding me uh, of um, the fact that this idea was really suggested one time when I threw out a call on social media for suggestions, ideas, things you'd like to see us do. Some listener, some listener whose name will be lost to history probably, uh, said on Facebook that that would be great if you could be live at night sometime and then you know replay it the next day. So wh- whoever you are, you're getting your wish. You've probably um, forgotten even that you suggested it or moved away or something. Uh, all right, anyway, it's time to make some recommendations. Carolyn Payne, what would you like to recommend? Um, all right, so... Besides poor house boxed wine. I was going to recommend okay, okay. that. <laughs> no, that was my Christmas gift to you. Um, no, there is a show uh, with Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. I endorsed this last year, and it's coming back. Uh, well, actually, now it's in its third season. And I can't say the title of the show on air, mm-hmm. um, but it rhymes with Pitt's Creek. And um, <laughs> it is such, I mean, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara are just, you know, they are little comedy treasures. And this show is. They were, of course, a married couple in Best in Show. Yeah. And, and, and so many other things. Waiting for Guffman and all those Christopher Guest movies. And um, Eugene Levy's son actually wrote this show with them in mind and got it, got it uh, produced. And, and it's a really fun show to watch. So I highly recommend that. I also have to. Uh, where, where do we find that show? It's on some network called Pop. Um, mm-hmm. If you have Xfinity on demand, uh, you can find it on, on demand. You can just talk into your remote. Um, <laughs> Says the girl who did the commercial for the stupid remote. I, yeah. I did. <laughs> I, I just had to throw that in there. Um, I also wanted to say that the uh, red carpet experience, the fundraiser for uh, AIDS Connecticut will be coming up February 26th. It's a really fun night. You can get your if you buy your tickets early, it's cheaper. So, and I know Colin always goes to that. It's a really great event. You can wear a costume inspired by your favorite movie from the year, wear black tie, create a black tie, anything you want and it you know, it goes to a wonderful organization and there's great food and you can watch the Oscars there on a big screen and I'm going to be judging fashions this year. <laughs> so, you can get judged by me. All right. Uh, Teresa, what have you got for us? 
Um, I've been reading a book called Prisoners of Geography, 10 Maps That Explain Everything About the World by Tim Marshall, and it's been recently updated. So I've been working my way through it slowly because it sort of goes country by country or map by map so you can come back to it. But it starts off with Russia. It explained Crimea to me in a way that I did not understand before. It moves on to China. I now understand the stuff going on in the South China Sea and why people are all a fuss about it. So if you just want an easy way to understand geography, Politics, I really recommend it. Oh, what a nice recommendation. And see what it's called again? Prisoners of Geography, 10 Maps That Explain Everything About the World. Right. When we do the show at night, you have to repeat things more <laughs> because I, they won't stay with me. Yeah. Kate. All right. Over the holidays, I had the sad opportunity to attend the funeral of my poet friend, Monica A. Hand. And I realized this whole year I've never recommended a book of poetry, so I'd like to yeah. do it tonight. I'd like to endorse her first book of poetry, Me and Nina, from Alice James Books. Uh, Monica told me that she wrote her first Nina Simone poem in a Cave Canem poetry workshop that I taught in New York City a number of years ago. She'd walked in late, and I uh, I handed her a postcard portrait of Nina Simone as a writing prompt. Uh, Listeners can get the book, Me and Nina, by Monica A. Han from Alice James Books, alicejamesbooks.org. And since I've mentioned Nina Simone, I like to endorse one of my top ten favorite albums, which is To Love Somebody by Nina Simone. It's the purple one. And the album features several songs by our Nobel laureate, Bob Dylan, I Shall Be Released, The Times They Are Changing, and Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues. And the album also includes a great Nina Simone interpretation of Suzanne by the late, great Leonard Cohen. All right. Let me recommend, first of all, um, a couple of few movies that are not necessarily part of the Oscar conversation, but part of the critics' conversation. I heard heard about them a lot at this uh, dinner on Tuesday night. Nocturnal Animals, which is uh, opening at Real Artways right now uh, on on Friday night. It will open with uh, Amy Adams and oh Jake Gyllenhaal is in it. Um, Daughters of the Dust, a reissue of a, a much beloved yes, Kate's over there cheering <laughs> is also coming eventually to Real Artways. So is The Handmaiden. Very quickly, yeah, I've got a couple of seconds here. Uh, one thing that has always fascinated me: we're doing the show at night, and there are many historians, not many, some historians have written fascinating histories of the way our understanding of night, what it meant, the human understanding of night, has changed over the centuries. I'll mention two: Evening's Empire. Uh, a History About the Changing Attitudes Towards the Night in uh, Early Modern Europe by Craig Koslowski. Uh, and At Day's Close, Night in Times Past by A. Roger Eckerch. That's E-K-I-R-C-H. Both terrific books, both books that I read and enjoyed. You'll never think about the night the same way. Neither will I after having spent an hour of one with Carolyn Payne, Teresa Kramer, and Kate Russian. Lucky me. We'll be back, back, back next week. I'd hope that NBC's Megyn Kelly deal was a trade for Joe Scarborough and a future draft pick.